All right, good evening. Welcome to another edition of Building the Scottish State. I have the great pleasure to have with, uh, Matt Campbell with me today, convener of English Scots for Yes, my guest on several interviews at the SNP conferences over the past years. So first of all, thank you, Matt, for being with us this evening. Not at all. Uh, it's uh, Matt Campbell Sturgis. I tend to drop the last part of my double battle name, but um, okay. during an election period, you have to make sure I, I get that in there. Otherwise, people might think there's a different Matt Campbell. I don't know. Is it that common a name, Campbell? Matt Parts. Pretty common. You are a, a candidate for uh, the, the Dumbarton constituency for MSP and your uh, so tell us a little bit about your candidacy and what you bring to the table and uh, a little bit about the the process whereby the the uh, candidates are chosen I'm a prospective candidate the SMP have a a bit like the primary system in America the SMP have a candidate selection process prospective candidates put our names forward or are nominated and then it goes to a ballot of all the members in that area so in the department constituency where I live all of the members will get a vote on who our eventual candidate is. And I'm one of the seven contenders for that candidacy. And then after that, obviously, we will then go into the election itself, where I'll be up against, if it's me, hopefully, I'll be up against Jackie Bailey, MSP, the Labour and current sitting MSP for Dumbarton. In terms of what I bring to the role, I, I'd like to think I bring experience and vision. I was an SNP councillor over in Greenock before I moved here four years ago. Yeah. And as you know, I also founded English Scots BS. And as an English person, I think I'm, I'm well placed to refute the sort of things that Labour like to slyly suggest about the SNB, like we're in some way anti-English. And I'm also, I think, in a good position to refute some of Jackie Bailey's assertions over Paz Lane, the, the um, naval base that's in my constituency area, because you know I, I served in the reserves myself as a Royal Engineer, so I've, I've got a mili- bit of a military background, not, a, not an extensive military background, unfortunately, mm-hmm. my eyesight got too bad to stay too long, but I'd like to think I bring a bit of that to it, so I, I think I can face down Jackie and say, yes, I don't think we should have tried nuclear submarines, but no, I absolutely support our forces families because you know we need them for defence, and when we're independent, in fact, I hope to see the Fazlane and Kupal bases enlarged take on their new role as the headquarters of the Scottish Defence Forces and also bring a wealth of other experience as a, as a councillor, as someone who campaigned in the referendum, set up a national campaign group and another thing I think I, I bring to it is my familiarity and skills with the internet which weren't really a big thing a few years ago but now that we face a pandemic where traditional electioneering is going to be impossible, having someone that knows how to use social media may well be important. I agree. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, your background. How did an English uh, and you have a you have a military background? And uh, what, what brought you to Scotland? And what why, why do you support Scottish independence? Uh, it's actually the um, what brought me to Scotland is why I left reserves in the first place. Actually, um, I joined the reserves when I was in England, um, and, and I met my partner over the internet. And I visited a couple of times and I left the reserves to come up here to move here. And my plan was to rejoin. But when I attempted to rejoin, I discovered that my ice was just a bit too poor to, to allow me back in. Why I support Scottish independence? I support Scottish independence because I live here and I want the government here to represent my views and the views of the other people that live here rather than a party government in England in London that doesn't represent our views, forget Scotland exists until there's a problem or they want something, and, you know, haven't won elections here since the 1950s. So, you know, for me, the arguments around independence are ones of self-determination and having a country that's by the people that live here and have most to gain from good governance. So I, I think that, that doesn't really change whether you're born in England or born in France or America or, you know, anywhere. 
it's not about where we were born, but where we're going together as a country, which is incidentally mm-hmm. the motto in Scots Yes, I can't blame credit for that. We stole it from Bashir Ahmed, one of the uh, latest in the MSP and the first Scots Asian to be elected to the Scottish Parliament. Assuming you are, uh, you do become the nominee of the party and you do actually win, what do you see as your role in the, uh, it, once you become a, an MSP? How do you see, uh, how do you see advancing the, uh, the cause for independence and uh, referendum, et cetera? But let's go through a, sort of a hypothetical scenario about what happens over the coming months that would enact a referendum. How do you see the next few months uh, panning out? Well, I mean, first and foremost, if I was elected, if I was honoured by the party to be our candidate and then subsequently elected, which I'd very much like to be, and I very much hope we will win the seat regardless of who our candidate is, I think I'm the best place person to be that candidate. First and foremost, your role as an MSP is to represent the people of the constituency regardless of who they voted for, fairly and equally. And that would be my first and priority. And, and obviously, to do that, to represent and better their lives and the better the Martin as a whole and Scotland, I believe that we will need independence. So it will be to advance that that case for independence. In terms of what I think was going to happen over the next couple of years, I think it's very likely that assuming the SNP um, are returned to government with a majority in the parliament, I think we will do if people vote SNP. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, if they don't vote for us, then we can't do anything. But assuming that we are returned as a government and hopefully as a majority, I think that the first one of the first things the the returned Scottish government will do is establish a referendum on independence and you know advance that case from there i think within a year or two of that election we will start the transition to an independent state and that will see us you know setting up the architecture of a new old country Mm. new new country and you know returning some of the powers to scotland that are currently used in westminster against our advantage and that's going to, you know, that, that's going to be the bulk of the next parliament, assuming that independence can be done in that space of time and it's not delayed until after, you know, a vote is taken and then the rest of that parliament. I think what will happen is the rest of the parliament will be the setting up of the independent state architecture. Mm-hmm. Come back to the topic of this podcast. I think, I think that that's what the bulk of the next parliament will be if we have that vote and, and we win. I think that the rest of the parliament will be devoted to the setting up of that independent state and establishing the, the first elections of that independent country, which, you know, very much hope for me to be part of that conversation, for me to be part of that parliament and me to continue being part of that parliament. I would very much like to be the first SMP MSP for the Martin and the last SMP MSP for the Martin because there won't be an MSP after that. It will simply be member of the Parliament of Scotland, mm-hmm. the Scottish Parliament being subordinate to the Western Parliament. And that, that sort of ties in with the first question. In a new state, how will the people make sure to get an equal say when the judiciary always takes over? How will we be equal under the law in a new state? I went to a meeting, was crammed full of lawyers wanting to write the constitution for us. How, how do you see a a constitution, a constitutional convention, which is much more all-encompassing, because we don't like in 1789 and you know in the in, in the U.S. it was mostly you know landowning oligarchs that got together and, and very secretly wrote the constitution, and uh, there was a lot of popular opposition to, but it eventually did get ratified. But it was very much designed to run the country in the interest of those who owned it. And uh, I've been involved in this process since 2011, trying to play a role. And one of my main motivating factors was not wanting to see it become 
just another corrupt oligarchy like the UK is now in the United States. What, what do you think can be done to you know, make sure that once independence is achieved, that Scotland doesn't just become a little mini Westminster and that it can, there can be genuine popular participation in real democracy in Scotland? You're right. The Federalists and the Constitutionalists, obviously, you know, the, the wrangling over the US Constitution. A lot of people think that the US Constitution dates from the same time as the Declaration of Independence, not realising that it was actually that period between where the Federalists wanted the difference in, in eventual the constitution that was adopted. In terms of why I think the UK is starting to go down that road of oligarchy and why the US is sad, I think that, that that's more of an establishment over time that can happen unless constant reforms occur. Now, I'm not entirely sure what we can do to avoid that in future, but what we can do to avoid that at the start are to ensure that we have the kind of checks and balances that are lacking from the UK government set up because we don't actually live in a democracy in the UK. I know that everyone likes to think it's democracy, but actually the UK is a monarchy. So we don't have any checks and balances against monarchical oppression because, you know, the monarch is the absolute sovereign of the UK. Although in Scotland, the monarch is not sovereign, the people are sovereign. Mm. But in terms of what we can do, I think that we need to make sure that when we establish a constitution, it has the checks and balances that stop Scotland mm -hmm. into those traps down the line. And, you know, making sure that there are democratic oversights for every stage of the process and making sure that you know our judiciary is accountable to the mm -hmm. people, making sure that our parliament is properly accountable, making sure we don't have an upper chamber that's just completely unelected, mm -hmm. and making sure that, you know, that, that we don't end up in a situation like we see in the US where party system revolves around who's got the most money, who's got, who's got the best lobbyists, and, you know, term limits are a thing. So you have people sitting in office for 30, 40 years that can't be unelected because, you know, they're never going to lose the seat. That's the sort of situation that breeds oligarchy. Before I got involved, I, I taught a class on campaign finance in the United States. And I mean, it's, I had to go around from the toilet a few times when I was doing research. <laughs> you know, it's just when, so... When, when you say campaign finance law in the US, I picture a pasta machine and putting your head through it and turning it to spaghetti. Oh, God. It, and it's, it's even worse now. I mean, it, it was it was... It was always bad, but since the 1970s, they had at least made some efforts to regulate it, you know, in the post-Watergate era. And so you had like hard money and soft money and these different limits on certain types of money, but that was just all wiped away with after the McCain-Feingold of 2001. Uh, Citizens United, wasn't it? Yeah, that, 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 that just obliterated everything. Yeah. There, was just, was, there was absolutely no limits whatsoever. I mean, we're, we're not and immune so, to that kind of thing in Scotland. You know, we see lobbyists, no. although we have a much more robust system in the Scottish Parliament for dealing with lobbyists. Mm -hmm. Lobbyism. You know, we, we, we have lobbyists in Scotland, and you know, it's, it's creeping into party selection where uh, when we've now reached the point where the SMB is more likely to win a seat than any other party in certain places. We're now seeing contests which in the past were literally just a meeting where all the local members got together in a room and decided who the candidate was going to be. We're now seeing full on selection contests. You know, I'm doing videos and presumptions. In places, there are candidates spending money, quite large amounts of money, to try and secure the selection. Mm -hmm. And because the election isn't an afterthought in those seats, but it's so likely that they could not manage to win the seat that it's almost seen as a, an election in itself, which is very like U.S. primaries. And I'm not very comfortable about that thing. I'm, oh, I, I, I completely understand. What do you, and what and that would be really interesting to, you know, kind of uh, now develop bills or laws to limit that. And I'd be more than happy to give any input into that, given yeah. given what I've, I've seen about it. But I mean, you know, if if, if already even before independence, we're getting you know the money becomes much more important in the process. That's that's not good. I did it here locally. I, I, 
not sure if all of us have because there was a couple of late developers here, but three of us for certain have said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to agree to a spending limit. I think we suggested 50 or something, 50 pounds mm-hmm. of advertising locally in the Barton constituency, and we wouldn't spend any more than that each because that money should be getting spent on an election. That money should be getting on, on the actual general election, not on the SMB internal selection process. And I think that's the right thing to do. But um, to go back to the question about how do we make sure that everyone is equal under the law and how do we make sure the judiciary don't come in and take over? I'd caution about seeing the judiciary in a bad role in this. If you're writing a constitution, you know, you're writing the legal framework that governs a country. Having lawyers in from the start is probably a good idea. It would be like building a car without anyone that can do any mechanics. But Mm -hmm. you do need oversight there. And I think political oversight of the constitutional writing process will be vital because we need that representation of the people for the people by the people baked in at the base layer of that constitution mm-hmm. without having to then go back and amend it dozens of times i mean all constitutions get amended anyway but you know the likes of the u.s constitution parts of it were amended 10 minutes later the first 10 uh, was the bill of rights because a lot a lot of the states made ratification contingent upon the the, uh, the Bill of Rights being the first order of business in the first Congress, which in fact it was. And they've tacked on another 17 amendments since then, mostly uh, broadening the franchise. Two of them were, uh, were uh, prohibition and then re- repeal of prohibition. But when you think about it, I mean, we live in an age when that, that you don't have to amend it that way. I mean, before, if you attacked on an amendment, you know, you can't change all of the Constitution's texts especially in the 19th century. So you had to, they had to tack on amendments to the, to the end of it uh, to, to, to change what was in the original text. But in the original text, you still have the three-fifths compromise, which, you know, which counts slaves as three-fifths of a person. You still have that just ridiculous electoral college system that, that was, again, dates from the slave era, you know, to make sure that, 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 that the wealthy landowners in the South were, you know, compensated. Exactly, that they were balanced and they land. wouldn't be able, and, and, the, and the whole 19th century where they would accept, with, with the, uh, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, where they accepted one state, slave state, one free state at the same time, which of course ultimately re- resulted in the, in the Civil War. But, but my point being is that if we have, a, you know, a, a constitution like that I've developed where you you can and, and we're going to put it and we've got also got a blockchain format uh, platform that we're using for digital covenant.scott uh, whereby we can take the signatures which are basically uh, self-sovereign it can be self-made into self-sovereign identities and then we could have a, a genuine people's popular you know blockchain popular participation in developing the constitution you know i mean people are going to come up with different drafts but at, at the end that if there would there was a referendum not whether to accept a, a constitution or not but to vote on the constitutional drafts out there you know so often it's been like you know do you accept this constitution yes or no rather than why not have it where there's several drafts that people can choose. I, I do caution about some of that aspect. I mean, I'm, I'm down for direct democracy. The only thing I caution about is when it's something that's fundamental as a constitutional framework, my only caution is that, you know, the, the pedal of the masses there would be that, you know, you might see minority interests or groups or persons, you know, sacrificed to the will of the many there, whereas a constitutional a guided process it shouldn't just be like you say do you want this or not there should be much more feedback but i do think that at some point notwithstanding the questioners um concerns around the judiciary i do think that we need the, them experienced legal minds to come in and say okay, you can you can vote on this idea or not on this idea but you can't have this because that's just not going to fly that sort of thing is, is i think you, you need that experienced input and then i think that each part of it should have a 
a consultation ratification process. And I, I actually like the way that the Scottish Parliament's committee and consultation process sort of works in that way. Because the Scottish Parliament is unicameral, because it, we don't have an upper chamber, the committee process is a lot more robust. And I think that's where you end up getting them views because the consultation process for every Scottish bill virtually, you know, feeds in a lot of information. And then you have the representatives of the people guided by the legal expertise of the judiciary, but ultimately the, the representatives of the people come in and say, no, that's a bad idea. That's just the courts taking over. Or yes, this is a good idea. This protects these people's interests. And, then, and that might protect people that, you know, might only make up one or two percent of the population where if it was a purely direct democracy process, you know, 80% of the population say, yeah, that's fine. We don't mind that. And the other 10% are going, um, that's not good for us. I think, I think that would be the danger. So I do caution against that, notwithstanding my, my um, fondness for blockchain-based democratic structure. Uh, we should probably move on to the next question there, though. I think it's about um, referendums and postponing them for COVID. The question is, um, when do you think we, we can go forward with a new referendum for Scottish independence? And it's closely tied to the next one, which is, I don't think COVID-19 should be used as an excuse to postpone a referendum. What do you think? I mean, I personally, obviously, um, any referendum bill that comes up what the Scottish Parliament, if I was selected and elected, yes, I would have a say on that. But in terms of the timing of a, a referendum and, and, you know, whether things get postponed because of, of other events, that wouldn't be up to me. I think that would be the, the up to the, <laughs> the party that is in government, which will hopefully be the SNP. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm believing that the, that that post is currently not up for selection. <laughs> so I, I, I don't think Nicola has anything to worry about for me in that regard. Um, but in terms of where do I think that's going to happen, I think it's very likely that within, if the, as I said before, if the SNP are returned as government, a majority government in the Scottish Parliament, I think it would be within a year or so of, of the election, there will be a referendum, I think. I think everyone kind of accepts that, you know, without what, 58, 60% of the, in the polls possibly are now in favour. In terms of do I think COVID-19 should be used as an excuse to postpone a referendum, I don't think anyone's suggesting it be used as, as an excuse, but I do think that the pandemic, if we don't see a vaccine, if we don't see an end to the, the horror of the pandemic fairly soon, I think it will have an effect on the democratic process. But do I think that it should be used to delay or that it should delay the referendum? No, I don't. I don't think that democracy can be delayed forever. Just as we can't postpone and lock down the economy forever, mm. I think that our democratic process will eventually have to move on regardless of what's happening with the pandemic. Hopefully, though, like I said, hopefully there will be a vaccine successfully soon. I, I think that that's just how we have to go with that. I was looking through the Scottish Reserve Bank website, and they have a very detailed timeline. And from what I understand, they have they have set the date for, I forget exactly what day in uh, September of, 2021, of 2021. And so uh, apparently, I mean, it looks as if they've got it planned out. And uh, when the SNP uh, manifesto comes out, do you know when that's supposed to come out, the SNP manifesto? No, I, I usually, yeah, party manager, I'm not even a candidate yet. So um, I, I don't think I'm on the, the mailing list for the class. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but usually manifestos tend to come out, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months at most before an election. So I imagine we'll be we'll be seeing one in March or April next year. Okay, okay. Um, right. Yeah, I, I saw the stuff about the National Investment Bank. I'm not entirely certain, though, that you can conflate that with 
an eventual referendum, etc. I know there are currency plans underway. Then the National Investment Bank will be more about um, you know investing in Scotland and being used as a way to progress capital spending plans. It's actually a detailed one about how the transition of, of, of the currency. And, the, and from what I understand, chatted with uh, Gordon McIntyre Kemp, and he basically affirmed that they that it is very likely that the, the, the manifesto will include this basic framework, saying, okay, we're, you, you know, if 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 the SNP is elected. The, the referendum will be on this date. So when people are voting for the SNP, they're in, and they're voting for this plan, as far as I understand. I mean, I'm not privy to anything you aren't, so I, I can't confirm that. But it looks as if they've got it pretty well planned out. I just, it, it, I think that they just have to wait to the right moment with regard to the Brexit you know, things to 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 make a move. But I think, I mean, I really think by before the end of the year, there, I mean, there has to be some kind of commitment made because uh, or else, I mean, especially as it's looking increasingly likely, there's going to be a no deal Brexit. Uh, so, I mean, ho- hopefully there isn't a no deal Brexit because that's the last thing anyone in the UK and Scotland or in the rest of the UK needs right now, especially with the pandemic. But, you know, I, I think this is one of the things we're just going to have to sort of watch and see what happens. And I know that, you know, as we go forwards, currency is probably going to be the number one issue followed up by how will we finance the Scottish state, which is obviously, you know, uniquely tied to currency. And there's there's going to be a lot of arguments over opponents of MMT versus traditional financing. And and the, the, that gets into the weeds a lot because, you know, you get these ridiculous analogies about current accounts of people treating the country as if it's a regular bank account. You know, last time I went to my bank, I'm not allowed to mint currency. They were really quite strong on that one. They, they really do not want you minting your own currency. Whereas a country obviously has all of its own currency in most cases. So, you know, I, I think these ridiculous analogies just don't hold up. So I think that the argument's probably going to be quite messy, but ultimately currency policy and stuff, you know, that that's that's something where the economists will be much more in control of the situation, much more guiding that discussion than you know, people on Facebook arguing about well, what if you've got this much debt versus this much deficit, not, not yeah. actually understanding what those terms really mean in the yeah. context of a country and currency of the adoption, you know. So I think that's a, it's a complex topic that people don't tend to wrangle with very well. It's, as far as I understand it, I mean, uh, of course, the deficit is the is the difference between the money that it's, it comes in and as expended, uh, and that, but it, it, and then the, but the way that they finance the debt, as I understand it. Uh, is to issue bonds. So, for example, the United States has treasury bonds that are owned all over the world. And then, normally, if it's a ten-year bond, you know, you give a certain percentage per year uh, per year in return, and then you buy the bond back at the end. But the United States can just keep printing it forever. I mean, when they come up with these, the, the whole idea that like taxpayers uniquely finance the government is just absurd. I mean, they just they, they create you know as much currency as they want. Whenever they want to, if they can find you know trillions of dollars for to you know puff up the stock market during the pandemic without helping anybody, without actually helping any individuals. Yeah, the 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 the, the current term that the UK government prefer is uh, quantitative easing rather than printing more money because yeah. nothing else. We don't actually print the money anymore; it's just a spreadsheet somewhere. But you know the 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 point about you know you're absolutely right. The US Treasury issues its bonds on I think I think they're issuing a 250 year bonds at the moment it's ridiculous the idea that everyone's ever going to call them on those debts and it doesn't actually matter you know the supply of money the liquidity doesn't increase beyond the ability of the economy to service that liquidity you know there are goods and services for that money to be spent on it really doesn't matter how much a deficit in that instance is although obviously you know an independent country like Scotland isn't the USA it will be smaller and thus will you know need to be able to 
for deal with other countries and, and service its debts in other currencies, which is where hyperinflation kicks in places like uh, Germany through World War II and in other, you know, Argentina in the 90s, where it wasn't the, the economy locally that caused that inflation. It was servicing those debts in the currency of, of the country to other countries. That's where, you know, not to get into the weeds there, I think we are probably. Um, but, you know, that, that's where those sorts of situations occur. And when Scotland, in the Scottish context, you know, we've got that huge oil and gas resource and the wind resources as well, and our trade and industry, you know, portfolio with with whiskey and tourism and the like, we're actually going to have a, when, when we have our currency, we're going to need to make sure that it doesn't actually become too valuable. And, mm. you know, then, then we will, otherwise we'll face problems with, you know, import-export stuff. So I, I, I'm not tremendously worried about that sort of thing, but people don't understand what deficit and debt, debt mean in that national context. I mean, you know, you ask the average person, where do your tax pounds go? They say, oh, to pay for spending. Mm. So they don't. When you pay government money with tax, you know, you know this, you're nodding along, but the majority of people have no idea that when you give the government £100 in cash for your taxes, that money is gone. That money st- ceases to exist the moment it hits the government. It, I mean, technically it's paying down the debt or, you know, right, right on. but it doesn't exist anymore. The government creates new money and then pay the servicing on that debt. So people don't understand these contexts at all. And to be fair, I don't understand them. Nobody understands them. They're that obtuse and, you know, out there in the clouds. So I, th- I think the, them sort of arguments get dwelt on heavily in the media. And I think that's actually quite deliberate. One. That's the role of the media to keep the debate, you know, within very narrow bandwidth and keep them arguing, oh, I, I want to reduce taxes by 10%. Oh, I want to reduce it by 20 You know, but it, it's, it's deliberate. It's to keep the public apathetic and, and to just, you know, have controversy over really minimal things. I mean, you watch talk radio. It's really interesting. I listened to James O'Brien quite a bit. He's, I mean, he's a good, he's a good talk radio, but, but they always frame it so narrowly. You know, are you going to follow these rules or not? You know, it, it doesn't really get to the big issues. And yes, that's very deliberate. I, I always like to confound that one. I mean, I was joking when I, I said it, but um, I remember at SNP conference, I think two years ago, the BBC were doing box pops around the hall. and they got like, that. Do that you believe so- that we should raise personal taxation or lower personal taxation? And I said, I don't believe we should have personal taxation. I think we should just tax the companies because people don't make money, companies make money, so tax it at the source and then don't bother individuals with it. I wasn't entirely serious about that, but the idea that I just think outside of that little box of raise or lower, which is what they wanted to talk about at the time, because you think we're talking about, you know, raising the personal tax, lowering the personal tax. You could actually see a head kind of, what, 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 what? Oh, that's a very interesting... That, that's absolutely... They were trying to shut me up and get away from me because it just didn't... I'm sure it didn't make the telly, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Well, I, mean, I, I, I do that deliberately just to sort of jump out of their little frame box. You stepped out of the bandwidth of debate, so you're not going to be heard. That's it's pretty simple. Going back to some of the questions from Duncan McCarisher, if any of the candidates for the SNP and Dumbarton need to let members get to know them and not hide away. I've got a vote and I've only had contact with three of them. Well, I, um, I don't know if I've had contact with Duncan. I'm trying to reach out to all of the SNP members um, in the Demarcan constituency. One of the problems I'm maybe not every member is aware of contact with members delivered by party rules. Um, we're given two emails and I've not sent my first email yet and I'll send my second email later. I'm going to send my first email, I think, probably in the next few days in the run up to our hustings. Lovely. And I, I encourage Duncan, if you're out there listening, Duncan, 
please come along to the virtual hostings. I believe they're on next Tuesday night and you'll, you'll get an email from the constituency association in regards to that. I, I think it is an important point though, because of the pandemic, you know, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I'd be out knocking doors, but we're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to contact them deliberately in person or, you know, in, on phone them or anything. So it is actually a problem getting a hold of members. And I wonder what that's actually going to do to our democratic process across the country, because and in the election as well, we're going to end up, I think, with representatives that a lot of their voters haven't actually had the chance to discuss matters with. But I'm here. So if Duncan wants to reach out to me, find me on Twitter, Math Campbell. You can go to my, my Facebook website. That's um, comment on Facebook. So he's obviously on Facebook. So you can find me, Math Campbell Sturgis SMB. Uh, reach out to the running in live here. You'll be able to get a hold of me. I am more than eager to talk to you. Sorry, that was a bit of a personal plug there. How soon could we get rid of Trident? Well, I mean, Trident um, depends on us becoming an independent country because um, defence is a reserved matter for the Westminster Parliament, so I'm sure Peter Dixon, Peter Dixon is aware. Um, in terms of how soon could we get rid of it after independence, you know, it, it's in my constituency. Fraslane is, <laughs> is just over there. So, um, you know, uh, it, it's something that's very dear and near to my heart. I want Fraslane and Toolport, the two military bases here, to actually be growing after independence, uh, quite aside from Jackie Bailey's scaremongering about job losses, I actually think there are more people locally after independence because it will be the headquarters of the um, Scottish Defence Forces. In terms of how quickly that happens after independence, obviously that will depend on negotiations. Uh, in the run-up to independence, we will have to negotiate for our share of the military, we'll have to negotiate for what's going with base because it would not only would it not be possible it would be vastly irresponsible of scotland as a new independent country to say you've got 24 hours get the socks out of here we couldn't do that it would be unsafe um there needs to be a decommissioning process there needs to be a a planned retreat for the uk government to quietly pack up its stuff and leave um in terms of how long that might take you know how long is a piece of string i think realistically the scottish government um and the scottish people wouldn't want a long process and I would think we would want compensated for the amount of time that would take. Um, and I think that that long process of, of, you know, them decommissioning and moving their submarines, I'd hope that they actually take the opportunity to say, yes, we don't need nuclear weapons anymore. Let's just get rid of them. Mm -hmm. I suspect they probably won't. That's entirely up to them once, once we've left the UK. Their defence policy is their own. Um, but I think that three to five years would probably be realistic 10 at the outset but you know I'm, I'm speculating and guessing here it will depend on so many factors for negotiations and compensation for scotland for tolerating these illegal immoral weapons in our waters for the minimum amount of time possible but that is actually my answer it will be the minimum amount of time that we can physically reasonably ask them to get out that's that's really the matter someone else asked there incidentally trident is the elephant in the room but how do you think america will react as it is their baby well, I mean, ultimately, I don't think America will care particularly if the UK government's keeping Trident and keeping buying them weapons from America. I don't think they'll care where exactly they store them. I think that's actually a very good question, and I'm going to continue talking. So sorry, Mark. Um, but I, I had quite <laughs> a good chat with a friend of mine who's in America, uh, Will McLeod. He's a journalist from um, Virginia. And he, he's spoken on this. He's, he's got friends on the Hill, and they've said, you know, actually, we don't care whether the UK government has Trident or not. We don't care if they're nuclear power or not. We've got enough missiles to wipe the face of the Earth. What we care about is that the UK can meet its NATO, you know, commitments. So if, if independent Scotland means that the UK government abandoned Trident and put their military spending into actually paying for troops to have body armour and, 
you know, able to deploy on a moment's notice and, you know, making sure that their combat regiments are ready to go, I think that they would actually welcome that far more than, you know, whether they renew Trident or not. And I, I think that independent Scotland, we will need to uphold our military commitments, which will mean people have talked about, oh, if we go to the Trident, we can spend that money elsewhere. And I will spend some of that money elsewhere, but I think we will need to face up to the fact that an independent Scotland will need defence forces and those defence forces will cost money and we should use that money wisely to properly patrol the Greenland, Iceland, Scotland gap mm-hmm. to make sure that our peacekeeping forces are able to deploy and are properly equipped for you know whatever contingencies they need to be facing around the world. We you know in Iraq and Afghanistan we saw people saying you know our, our troops don't have body armor. Now, I think that's scandalous. We spend an awful lot of money on defence in Scotland, and yet we don't actually have much to show for it other than an illegal, immoral weapon that we can't use and shouldn't want to. Mm-hmm. So. I think that that's a quite got a good question now. And I'll, I've been talking for about two minutes constantly there, so I'll stop and take a breath. Going back to an earlier one about uh, Boris Johnson shutting down the uh, Scottish Parliament on the first of the uh, first of January. I don't see it going that way, but they are setting up a parallel administration in Edinburgh. And rather than shutting it down, they would probably. I'm sure that they're seeking to basically take over. And it's in the in the internal markets bill. You have provision for this. And in the past, I, I, you know, as I was growing up with my dad, who was Scottish but very British as well. And you know, and the, but there was this, you know the, the British, you know, they know how to run an empire, and they were and they were competent administrators. And of course, many of the Scots, including my my grandfather on my father's side, was you know in the merchant marine to India. So you know, obviously, the empire is a big part of that. But there was a real, you know, a genuine respect for the competence of the Amer- of the of the British civil service and, and, you know, whether they were doing good or not, that was irrelevant. At least they, they were perceived as extremely competent and effective. That's not the case anymore. I mean, when you see Boris Johnson and, you know, I mean, I mean, that's just vaporized. I mean, any kind of respect for the yeah, civil I, I service. The telling thing about that is, you know, the, Boris Johnson is the, I, I'd said this about Theresa May, I'd said Theresa May is the worst prime minister the UK's ever had and Boris Johnson is worse. You know, it's, it's like they're on yeah. a downward slope to ever more incompetence. Just what I'm saying is that we're living in these times when you basically get, you know, Rupert Murdoch having more influence over who becomes prime minister than the, the entire uh, UK electorate, let alone Scotland. And it's really scary, you know, the fact that he, basically he's Michael Gove, Sarah Vine, all of these kind of media government figures. And of course, uh, D- Dominique Cummings, and they're just so much more unpredictable. I mean, the, the British state was predictable before, but now it's just so completely off the rails. Yeah, it's hard, it's, to, it's it's zany, hard to include anything. It's a zany madhouse of um, a zany insanity of people that have no competence and no business being there. You know, I, I phrase, I think it's, it's from the deep south in your homeland. Um, the, when you see a turtle upside down on top of a fence board, you have no idea how it got there. It's got no business being up there and, and you know, nobody knows why it's there in the first place. I think in, in terms of the danger, the question that the, the um, Kevin, Kevin on Facebook asked, what, what will happen if they just try and close the Scottish Parliament on January 1st? Well, A, they're not going to. B, it's not going to. And C, I don't entertain hypotheticals that I don't think have any basis in reality. However, I do accept the wider point that the UK government are clearly on a, on a march to try and steal the powers of the Scottish Parliament. They wouldn't close the building down, but they will gut the powers of it. So slowly over time, there's a Scottish Parliament and it doesn't have control over it. Oh, sure, they're not taking the powers away. They're just controlling all them and keeping all them powers in London so you can't actually do anything about it. I think that is actually a valid concern. I'm very deeply worried about that. I think that the answer to that is electing a strong... SNP majority in May next year and mm-hmm. are starting the independence referendum 
legislation and taking that step to being independent because I think there, there is no alternative now. Before, in 2014, I think there genuinely was the possibility, at least, that there, there could be some form of federalism. I didn't think it was going to happen, but I thought it was a possibility that it might, if, if the Labour Party got back into power, they might see it as their only way out of constantly losing elections in Scotland to give us some form of federalism and just, you know, leave us alone on that point. But now the, the Tories are, you know, fleeing the Tories. You said back Boris and his pals are running the, the, the asylum down there. And there, there's no chance for Scotland's future to be positive unless we take that step to be independent, I think. But I don't think they're going to close the building on January 1st. I think that would cause mass civil unrest. And I don't think realistic. even Boris isn't quite that stupid. Enough. But, you know, I, I might be wrong. But adapt it. I think I think that's not very realistic. Do you see emergency election called before the uh, new year or early January? Can the Scottish government dissolve itself and call an, an early election? Did yes, but it requires three quarters of Parliament to be in favour. And no, I don't. I don't know if they might be thinking of the UK government, like would the okay. UK government dissolve before January because of. Pretty election. sure. I, I'm pretty sure you meant the Scottish Parliament, but I. I uh, but uh, but as you said, if it takes a three quarters of the, of the, the things, I, that's that's certainly not going to happen. Cutting on Twitter, um, I, I want to just go ahead. Take it. Take it. Uh, it says I'm deeply. I'm happy and uneasy about what Matt Campbell said is saying about getting rid of trying to decommission nuclear weapons and mass destruction as long as 10 years completely unacceptable. I had a candidate vote in this constituency, I don't disagree. Did wake up. Well, first off, I said I think it's realistic to say three to five years. I think 10 would be the absolute outset. But what I said was that it's up to the Scottish government and in negotiations with the rest of the UK government, whatever we call them, the former UK government, to do so safely. I think that how long they should stay is the absolute minimum to legally and safely remove them. I do not want to see Biden in Scotland a day longer than is necessary. I think that we can't expect them to kick them out after 24 hours after independence because that just simply wouldn't be safe. And the last thing anybody should be wanting in this situation when we're talking about nuclear weapons is to suggest an unsafe course of action. However, I think realistically we'll be talking three to five years because it's not just safety removing them, but also making sure they have somewhere to take them to so that they don't end up in a dangerous situation where, you know, I, I, it's not up to us to decide where they go once they leave Scotland's waters. But, you know, I think that we have to be mature and sensible and say, how long is it going to take to remove them safely? You've got that exactly that long and not a day longer. I think three to five years would probably. Be I think two, I think two years. Two years is reasonable. Uh, I, mm, it includes building a facility to house. You know, if, if they've got a facility that can house the the actual, you know, the weapons, and and they can do that safely, for instance, in America, because you know the fighting system is invulnerable, then you know I would absolutely be pushing that we we ask them to do that and say, yeah, you can take safely take them to the United States and store them there for two years or however long it's going to take to build a base in, you know, somewhere in England, then do that. But you've got exactly that amount of time. My point was, I think that we should we should accept that we were going to have to keep them for a little bit after time after independence. But that time period should be literally as long as it takes for them to safely remove them, and not a single second longer. Not, yeah, we'll we'll let you keep them for 10, 15, 20. No, no. I think realistically, we'll probably be you know. In three to five years but if we could do it in two years then i'd be happy with that i'd be happy with a day but i think realistically we can't ask that so my, my issue is about safety not about you know some sort of lease agreement or something no how many how many they can stay here as long as they need to to safely remove them and not right and, and, and particularly you how many kilometers do you live from fast lane um 
kilometers. I have no idea, but we're about two and a half miles. Um, I can look out my window. That's like five. That's like so believe me when I say that. I don't know <laughs> yes, I think you have a particular interest in them being removed safely. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I understand um, Peter Curran's concerns. That I think he'd be unhappy if the candidate was suggesting, yeah, sure, take 10, 20, 30 years. We'll, we'll make money off the lease. I heard someone suggest that, and I was aghast at the idea. Are you kidding me? No, get out. Take them away as soon as you can. But as soon as you can safely, and that's the very important point I was sort of stressing there. I think people have some unrealistic expectations that you know if we declare independence on a Monday morning by Tuesday that the boat should be sailing down the port right away from Scotland. I'd love if that was the case, but realistically, I don't think we we would be mature and sensible in suggesting that. Okay, um, very interesting question. I I, I, I mean, uh, is, is about what how what your vision of a Scottish military is what, what what would it what would it be like what what should it be like i mean because there's always this tendency I, 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 part of the show that i will come to regret when i'm the scottish defense minister in 20 years time um <laughs> to it. someone posts this as a recording um please don't no um obviously uh, you know it's not up to me i'm not the scottish defense minister i'm, I'm not going to be the scottish defense minister if, if there, you know there's not going to be a scottish defense minister until we're independent and i don't think i would be in the running for that job just yet anyway um, so it's not up to me. Um, in terms of what I think we will see or what I would like to see, I would like to see Scotland um, taking on the military um, role of peacekeeper and living up to our commitments as a mature, independent country. Um, so I can see us going to be looking somewhat more like Denmark or Norway or Ireland in that respect, defence forces rather than a Navy, Army, Air Force, Coast Guard. I do feel particularly strongly that we should have a semi-military Coast Guard in the same way that the United States does. Uh, that doesn't mean that we have a Coast Guard that has guns and stuff. Uh, what I mean by that is that at the moment, the UK government privatised um, the Coast Guard in the UK. Mm. And those pilots and you know that fly their Coast Guard helicopters aren't military anymore, you see. So they're, they're civilians, so they can't operate the sort of environments that sometimes are necessary. So I think that a militarized or semi-militarized Coast Guard would be an important step for independent Scotland. At least it'd be, it, it, at least in the, it, when, when you say, at least in the sense of it being in public hands, no, rather than private. Yes. Um, I think the U.S. role is actually quite a, well, model is actually quite good for that because in times of war, they have obviously a military role, but the rest of the time they have a civilian role, but they are seen as a military service or semi-military. They're, they're seen as a kind of almost a police force or law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But with a rescue aspect, I'd say something more akin to the fire service. So that's kind of a, a, the role I'd like to see our Coast Guard taking with enlisted personnel and, you know, clearly defined roles, because that could also then encompass like fishery protection and, you know, um, border patrol as well from Scottish waters to stop smuggling and the like. I think that would be an important um, thing that the, the Scottish military could have, because we would have to have a pretty good navy because our waters are meant you know we have a huge coastline mm. to protect from you know trafficking of humans and, and illicit substances and you know all sorts of other issues as well with the coast guard and certainly rescue being one of them so i think that would be an important step for an independent scotland military in terms of other things you know that that's something about that's something for other people to with much more learned experience you know i was a this not like i was a general here so i don't have a have a you know keen military mind 
perspective to bring in here. Well, I, I think I think your experience would just would, would lend itself to at least giving a, a view on you know kind of the, the basic posture of a military. How much uh, I, I think that the, the the vast majority of Scotland would like to see a military that doesn't want to involve itself in overseas conflicts quite so yeah. much, particularly not ones that are you know against the United Nations resolutions of the time. Um, I think that in terms of where our military will go in, in years to come as an independent country, which I'm sure we will be, um, I think that we will need to uphold our peacekeeping obligations as a mature independent country. Um, and I can see that us taking on a role much like Denmark, for instance, mm-hmm. does. Um, in terms of what our assets and infrastructure may look like, obviously I'm, I'm going to be advocating that Baslane and Toolport are not only kept but also enlarged and seen as the headquarters and an actual headquarters for an independent Scotland's defence forces. Because mm-hmm. we won't have a Navy Army Air Force sort of stopped here, it will be one defence force. But mm-hmm. with such a large maritime area with the Greenland, Iceland, Scotland gap control, clearly the, the waterborne, the marine forces of that defence forces will have to be, you know, the 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 top level of it. They'll, they'll have to be the bulk of it in some way. So I think that Translating is an actual place to have those forces on Coolport as well, I should say. And I think we'll have to enlarge the basis for them to do that. Um, so I definitely see a role for an enlarged Scottish Defence Force. And bear in mind at the moment, I, I keep saying enlarged because at the moment we spend an awful lot of money on defence in Scotland, but mm-hmm. not very much the UK's defence forces, you know, defence infrastructure is actually in Scotland. We no. don't have any surface fleet to speak of our couple of minesweepers that are kept at Translating, but actually based around the world. We have the submarines, obviously, but, you know, we have one major air base. We have, you know, a couple of army barracks. It's, it's really quite minimal compared to the amount of actual money. You were looking at just an expenditure level of how much we spend versus what we've got. We're getting ripped off. Hmm. You know, so I think after independence, we'll have a lot more defence forces to, to deploy in Scotland and, and hmm. house and, you know, we're going to have to build some bases. Okay. Um, a long answer. Sorry. Okay. No, that's fine. That's fine. And what do you see as the? Um, I've, I've been kind of gaming this in my mind ever since the Brexit vote in 2016. But what 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 would happen within five or, you know, ten years? And I at, at the at the at the outset I had predicted that you know it would pretty much be the end of the UK. It was like lighting the fuse on on the UK, uh, and that Scotland would be independent, Ireland would be reunited, uh, etc. And I'm I'm wondering what. My my view is that I'm wonder I'm just wondering maybe I'm dreaming and maybe I'm being too utopian but that the that the European Union obviously they have to have plans in place for a no deal Brexit I mean they 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 know that the UK as well as anybody and how you know and how the you know the Johnson government has zero integrity and can't keep is completely corrupt and you know can't can't keep their promises. But at the same time, of course, they have to maintain the integrity of the European project. But I mean, it's always been kind of my dream that like once it was clear that no no deal Brexit was inevitable, which we'll know really soon. You know, I mean, like, uh, you know, within, within days, I would think, uh, you know, and uh, um, and then that the Europe, the Europe would say, hey, Scotland, if you want to, you know, if you, if you want to become independent, uh, we will recognize you and you can you can remain in the customs union market and we'll, after that after you get independence we'll find a way of you know getting getting you back in i don't think there's any doubt that you know most of the europeans would love to have scotland as an independent as, as an independent member Absolutely. state but they have to go through this thing. how do you, how do you see it I, you know i mean how do you see europe i mean cuz technically 
Scotland hasn't left the single market yet, but you know, I mean, it's it's on course to yeah. if it's a transition deal that, that's going to run out. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, the scope of midnight, it will you know pop and cease to exist, and we'll be left with holding the pumpkin. It's very confused mice. Um, to extend a very poor metaphor, um, in terms of what I, think <laughs> I happened, didn't quite get it, but anyway, <laughs> Cinderella, you know, spoke about that. Oh, gotcha. Um, pumpkin being Boris Johnson, presumably. Um, the, the I, I think the wider argument about what will happen after defense again, a lot of variables. That you know, I'm not you know, Nostradamus, I don't have a crystal ball, and if I did, I don't think I'd be using it for predicting the European Union stance on Scotland. I think I'd be using it for negative lottery numbers. Um, <laughs> but the, the in, in terms of what would happen, I think realistically, the European Union would love to have an independent Scotland, would be very warmly welcomed. You know, you see the, some of the unionists on Twitter are like screaming, oh, Spain don't want, you know, Spain don't want Catalonia and the Basque region to suddenly go independent and, and wouldn't mm-hmm. want to do anything to encourage that to be the case. But I think that uh, uh, Scotland going independent in a non-unilateral form, you know, no, no unilateral independence declaration, but a, a, an agreed Scottish independence method occurring, I think Scot- Scotland would be welcome to the European arms with open arms, mm-hmm. the Union with open arms. But, um, in terms of how I foresee that happening, I have, I have limited you know, prognostication abilities. So I don't know exactly the form that that will take. I, obviously, there will need to be negotiations and then there will need to be an admitted process. I suspect, strongly suspect, that that would be a very abbreviated process. We wouldn't see like the Sort of situation that happened in the early 2000s with the admittance of the um, previously Soviet nations being admitted. Because of the very reality that Scotland's you know, legislative function, we've been an EU member for 30 odd years, our legislative um, arrangements are already European compatible. So mm, I don't think it would be admitted. There are finance and currency questions that will, that will need to be answered. I suspect that will make up the bulk of the independence referendum debate going forward, so I'm not going to kickstart that right now. Um, but in terms of what will happen after that, I think that the, the European project is important. I think it will go forward. I think it will have to be adapted and changed to reflect the UK leaving. Um, but I don't think it's going to end in any conclusive way. I'm more concerned with our relationship with the rest of the UK, the former UK, after independence. I think, you know, people have asked us about, you know, well, there's going to be a hard border with England so. Well, no, I don't think we have to have a hard border with England because, you know, there's going to be a situation in Ireland where the Friday Agreement requires a soft border in Northern Ireland and the Republic. And I think whatever arrangements are eventually come to there can equally be doubled here with Scotland and England in the border there. So I think that's a much more interesting question. I think realistically, we're going to end up looking at quite a lot like Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's not a bad thing. Ireland did very well out of the European Union, arguably a lot better than it would Absolutely, absolutely. Um, right. It's an interesting question I want to quickly tackle. Please, please do. And, and then we'll, after you answer it, then I'd like to wrap up and just, uh, you can give your election spiel and, you know, <laughs> voters and shameless, shamelessly pander to voters as, as much as you want. So <laughs> I, I'm reminded of the spitting image thing with Neil Kinnock. Vote for me, your babies love them. Vote for me, vote for me, Neil Kinnock. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pander to people. Um, there is a question here. What do you think happened to that sub that was on fire the other day? Has there been any update? I want to very quickly say there was not a fire on the submarine. There was a fire. There was no fire on a sub. Um, what was happening there was, uh, many of your viewers might not be aware, that sometimes when they move the subs from Faslane to Coolport, they have to go around the Gareloff, which is what the picture behind me is. 
And um, they have, sometimes when they do that, they do it what's called a cold start. They do it on diesel power and obviously diesel emits fumes. And that's what the steam, it's not was, it mostly steam to be fair. That was not a fire. There was no danger to anyone absent the usual danger of moving, you know, pumping nuclear weapons around our waters. Um, the nuclear weapons are driven up to Scotland for the subs. Surely they can be driven back and you are just left with the subs. That's not entirely accurate. They're driven up to Scotland, but they're also driven down to England and then back again. They live in, well, they don't live, they're kept in Scotland. Um, they're taken down to England for routine maintenance because nuclear weapons don't just sit on a shelf somewhere. They have to be maintained and kept in very safe conditions. And part of that um, maintenance, then I believe in older masters down in England, and then they're driven back to Toolforts, where they kept them in there to go put on the submarines, which is why, um, you know, Baslane, the boats of Baslane's Toolforts, like we did the other day. Um, in terms of that, I think that um, that's part of the process. They will need to develop a place to keep them in England, or they could possibly use, um, I believe, it's Norfolk in the United States to permanently houses the Trident missiles whilst constructing somewhere. So that's part of the negotiations that will be taking place during our independence um, process to decide where they're going to get kept until they've got a permanent place in England. I suspect the UK government will want to keep them here whilst they're building somewhere in England to keep them, or possibly will. Um, and I think we could probably argue that they should keep them elsewhere, for instance, they should maybe talk to the Americans and keep them there. But you know, that's that's for the that's for like discussions, but they can't just be driven down to England and get there. There's no way to put at the moment. Um, nowhere safe anyway. Um, you were wanting me to wrap up, I believe. Um, yes, please just please vote, um... vote for me. Um, I'd ask any from Barton constituency association members, which includes, you know, Savela Lee and Helensburg, my own from the north, and the Martin itself, to consider giving me their number one vote because. I believe as five years as a councillor, um, running English Scots for the SN national campaign, which we founded in 2013, you know, there's a huge group spread across the entire country. And uh, it gave me quite a lot of media experiences where you met me, I believe. Um, I, I think that gives me the experience to to become an MSP and to run a campaign effectively against Jackie Bailey, but also as someone who's English and someone who served in the reserves, I think it nullifies two of the main arguments or main attack vectors that Jackie Bailey and the Labour Party like use a suggestion that somehow SMB is anti-English, which is categorical and demonstrably is not, you know, when you've got someone like me as a candidate, you know, I do not sound Scottish inside it. Um, and, you know, as someone who served in the reserves, I think it blunts her arguments around the SMB hate the military. Well, we don't actually, we, we don't want tribes anymore, but I'm full, you know, I, I stand fully behind our forces families. My neighbours are in the Navy, you know, I'm, I'm a former reservist. I think that, that them two aspects, you know, make, make me a very good choice be our candidate because we absolutely have to win the seat. Labour are going to throw everything they can at this. It's their number one target seat in Scotland. With Jackie Bailey, their deputy leader running for it. So, you know, I think we need a very strong candidate who can rebut all of Jackie's eyes, has the experience to do so, has the experience of being a candidate, can work a campaign in a social media network that we're going to find ourselves because of the pandemic, and has that background of being, you know, in my case, English and former military reservist. To take up and nullify some of our arguments from the get go, and I'm aware I'm speaking very fast here because we've had to cut off. So I think well, we'll you, can, you can take a couple. Extra minutes you can take a couple like extra minutes if you want. Oh, hey, we're not on the BBC. Don't worry, <laughs> we can run over time, no problem. <laughs> well, that's one of the mouth speaking things. <laughs> I spoke very fast there, um, <laughs> so apologies if any of your um, viewers 
had trouble following that spiel. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Is are there are there, are there some other points you wanted to make uh, before we before we wrap it up? I mean. Oh yeah. I mean, um, in terms of the the candidacy, you know, I think we've got some very strong candidates here in the bottom. I might like to you know ask for people's number one vote for, and if they've already picked a candidate that they want to back, you know it's a single transferable vote. So consider giving me your second vote um, because that might come. You know if they pick someone that's that doesn't succeed and and falls out of that race, then obviously um, their secondary vote will contribute to someone else. And I, so if they're not going to vote for me, then I'd ask for their second vote. Um, in terms of the, the other issues, you know, I've got a vision for Dumbarton that includes building up our local health services. Available. We focused a lot on the military, today, but you know, yeah. um, we we need more. Not um, Jackie Bailey likes to make an issue of a uh, local hospital there, the leading hospital. She always goes on about saving the veil as if it's constantly under threat, which it categorically is not. But I'd actually like to on building up the veil more services and uh, you know, reopening the accident and emergency that Jackie Bailey helped close in 2004, I believe. Um, or, 2006. Um, you know, more more local facilities, more more things locally, because the pandemic has shown us the, the wisdom of having local provision for these services. And also, you know, big part of this, the three issues that are going to affect this are like a Brexit independence and recovering from COVID. And, you know, we've covered independence of Brexit quite a lot, but I think the recovery from COVID, I'm going to be pushing some motions at party conference hopefully this year on. Um, trying to end the empty units problem where a lot of our high streets have empty shops, full of empty shops. I want to bring in, in some form of taxing mechanism to persuade the property owners and developers to own those empty units to let them out if necessary at a peppercorn level, or they're going to get taxed heavily to, you know, to the, the privilege of having an empty shop unit. And also a similar thing on um, second homes, holiday homes and Airbnbs to stop the empty villages problem because a lot of the places, particularly in the Highlands, but also out here, you know, near where I stay, in the the, the more rural part of the constituency, we have um, entire areas where there are just no permanent residents because they're all Airbnbs or second homes. And the ones that aren't Airbnbs and second homes are let houses that have been bought by property, big property owners and, you know, have, have been let out for scandalously huge rents. So I think we, we need to do something to control those situations, to be able to bring more young families in, we have depopulation problems. I think that the, the policies I'm pushing there on, um, you know, second home ownership, um, Airbnb stuff, and private renting, rent controls, would maybe um, help ameliorate those effects and bring in more young families, bring in more population to those parts of my constituency. And again, like I said, also maybe trying to help cover from COVID a bit as we. Um, incentivize property developers, shall we say, to bring in more local entrepreneurs running small shops and businesses. That's a big spiel as well. So apologies, and if you've stuck with us this long, well done, guys. Well, on that note, in, unless there's anything else that you'd like to add, uh, just thank you so much for being with you. Be thank delighted you to have you. Um, and I'm, I am interested in um, you know working with you over time to try, you know, try to maybe uh, develop some bill, not only on the constitutional issues, but also on uh, something dear to my heart is, you know, again, again campaign finance. We got to make sure that Scotland doesn't just become another oligarchy from the day from oh. the one. You know, I mean, I'm also keen to work with you on online voting and blockchain voting. We didn't discuss today. Oh well, I'm more than delighted. Uh, we can talk by Zoom or Skype anytime. I mean, I've got you know, I've got just a few classes. I've got lots of spare time, so be more than delighted to talk Life to you. Life of an academic, um. <laughs> just an English teacher. <laughs>
Oh, so it, was, it was great being on your show anyway. Absolutely. A pleasure. And let's let's get back in touch. And, and, and thank to thank you to all your viewers for your uh, for your questions. I'm sorry I wasn't able to get we weren't able to get to all of them, but all of them were well appreciated. And uh, hopefully when you're back, you can uh, you can answer them. <laughs> you can answer. Absolutely. Them. Happy okay. to come on any time. And, and feel free to contact Matt, uh, Matt, Matt directly uh, by uh, he mentioned earlier his um, his uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, he's very open on that note. Thank you very much. And we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye.